continuation of the ministry of the Word of God to John in the ninth chapter, John chapter 9. Once more, let's stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. John 9, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 12 this morning. I'm going to read verse 5 to keep us into the context of the whole. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors of those who the neighbor of those who previously had seen that he who was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes open? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Thus far God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do ask that you would bless that which you have called us to the preaching and the hearing of your word. Father, we are all but sinners and feeble in our frame. And so we look to you, depend upon you, that you would send your spirit to work in our midst, that this word that the spirit inspired John to write so many years ago, a true and faithful word, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray, O God, that you would bring it to bear upon us, loose the lips of our pastor, and open our ears, give us all a heart of understanding that we might see Jesus and magnify him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are only seven miracles recorded in the gospel according to John. John did not randomly pick a few and just kind of sprinkle them about so that he'd have some miracles across the pages of his gospel. No, John wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and each of the seven miracles was placed specifically and precisely with a purpose. Thus far in the gospel, according to John, we have seen and heard five of the miracles, the turning of the water into wine at Canaan, the healing of the nobleman's son. You remember the man who came from Capernaum when Jesus was in Canaan, the restoring of the paralytic who had laid for 38 years beside the pool. He restored him to full function, the feeding of the multitude with a few loaves and fishes, and Jesus walking on the water in the middle of the storm and then calming that wild sea. This is the sixth miracle that John records here in the ninth commandment, the healing of the man born blind, and then the seventh will be in chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus, who's been dead four days. He raises him from the dead. John, led along by the Holy Spirit, selected each of these miracles and placed them purposefully to teach us about Jesus and the salvation that he brings to the sons of Adam. We're not guessing when I say this. Listen to what John says at the end of his gospel. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
So that's why John picked these seven. He placed these seven purposefully and intentionally. We're going to look at this miracle this morning using four main headings, blind and lost, using the common for the extraordinary, God's work for God's glory, and then finally, consider the question this evening from the text as it applies today, where is Jesus? We begin with blind and lost in verse 6. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. And he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The way John writes this, verse 6, the words here tightly tie this to what has happened right before. Having said this, what had he just said? He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, then he performed the miracle. You see, John is very, very pointed, very pointed, pointedly, very clearly tying the miracle of the healing of the blind man to what preceded it. Jesus proceeds to heal this man who has been blind from birth, that the works of God should be revealed in him. Back, that's from verse three. Remember that Jesus was sent by the Father into the world so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. Uh, We're really seeing uh, that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus to be something of a foundation or a guide as we make our way through the Gospel of John. For this purpose, the Father sent his Son into the world. Jesus was sent by the Father to this blind man, This was a divine encounter, just as had been every other encounter that he had. They were not random, but they were specific, for none of the works of Christ were random. This event immediately follows the debate and the conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. The blind man's blindness, then, is a vivid picture of the blindness of the Pharisees, the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. These religious leaders who sought to do so much... And yet they were so blind, even as all men since the fall of Adam have been blind. If you had followed the blind man from his house each and every day as he went out to beg alms, you would have seen him groping his way forward, stumbling and staggering and failing and falling due to his blindness. That is the way that all men make their way through life apart from Christ. For this man literally all was blackness. Children, you remember when we talked about Mammoth Cave and just how dark it was as I recounted that experience to you. That's what that man saw every day. He saw nothing. His experience was absolute darkness. Pretty remarkable when you consider what he could not see, things that we take for granted. He could not see the beauty of the creation all around us. One of our daughters uh, was on into elementary school years. We happened at an opera, and uh, there was the uh, subtitles playing at the bottom of the stage, large enough that if you were sitting out in the audience, you could have read it. And she asked, am I supposed to be able to read that? And we realized that she couldn't see something like that. We got our eyes examined, got our glasses, and then... Uh, she goes, wow, that's, those are leaves on trees. And we just realized, you know, her, just for her, just that little bit of corrective lens, suddenly she saw the world differently. This man has seen nothing, none of the beauties of a sunrise or a sunset, the, the, the beauties and the perfections of the flower, the, the wonder and the majesty of a, an, a child created in the image of God as we see in our infants. All of this would have been hidden from this man. 
Well, the word of God uses blindness to teach us about our lost condition, lost in sin apart from God. There's a whole realm of the world and life and realities that we're blind to. We're spiritually blind even as we're spiritually dead. We're unable to see the beauty and the glories and the majesty of Christ, the one whom God sent into the world, who is the exact representation of the Father, unable to see and unable to know and unable to be changed. Unable to change her own condition like the Ethiopian who cannot change his skin or the leopard who cannot change his spots. Neither can the sinner do any good. That's from Jeremiah 13. Just as the sinner needs Jesus to be saved, so the blind man needed Jesus to give him his sight. Rick Phillips, uh, speaking on this text, sees four ways that are uh, very appropriate, and I'm following him in a moment or two, I might quote him, but following him, he says, first, we see that the blind man was outside the temple. He was outside the temple because his disfigurement, his infirmity of blindness, prevented him from entering into holy ground. He was disqualified because of this defect. My friends, this is a true picture of the sinner. Sin prevents us from drawing near to God. We are corrupt in sin, spiritually blind, unable to draw near to the Holy One, and with no desire to come unto the infinite God. Just as Adam's sin required him to be cast out of the original temple, that is the Garden of Eden, and he was barred from re-entry by the angel with a flaming sword, indeed all of Adam's children are barred from God's holy presence because of sin. The Puritan John Owen says it well, because of sin... No man in his natural state has fellowship with God. God is light, and we are all darkness. What communion has light with darkness? Well, secondly, although Jesus was near the, man, uh, near the man, the man's blindness made him unable to see Jesus. If Jesus had not paused and taken time with him, the man would have had no understanding of Jesus. He would have had no encounter with Jesus. His birth defect had rendered the man blind. Just as all the sons of Adam are conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, we are spiritually dead and unable to draw near to God. As Asaph says in Psalm 82, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. That's our condition apart from Christ. We walk about in darkness. Oh, we can see the world around us, but we are spiritually blind. We walk in darkness, and we do not know the things of God, and we do not know God, nor are we able to. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, notice his language, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No doubt the parents of the blind man would have described him the beauty of of a flower or the setting of a sunset. They had no ability to understand those things. The hues of the, the pinks and the golds and the sunset and a sunset. My friends, this is true for us sinners in the realm of spiritual things. Sin blinds us as sinners so that we can hear of the beauties and excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as they're set out in the preaching of the Word of God, but as there is just falling on deaf ears. No understanding, no ability to see the Redeemer while dead in sin. Thirdly, the blind man could not be helped by mere man. No one 
could have given him. As he begged his alms, no one could have given him enough money that he could have gone to some doctor somewhere and paid him to escape the bondage of blindness. Indeed, indeed, salvation cannot be purchased by mere men. Jesus, as recorded in Mark 8, said, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his his soul? If you had the wealth of the world, you cannot purchase salvation for your sin-corrupt heart. Fourthly, the blind was hopelessly blind. And he has accepted that he cannot change his sight. He has lived out his years. Later on we'll hear that he was of age, probably at least 30 years old, as it was considered in the culture that day, to be of age, a fully grown man capable of doing what was expected of any and all men. And here he is some three decades. He has just settled for a life of darkness. It's all he's ever known. He makes no effort to be free from it. He does, even as Jesus passed by, unlike blind Bartimaeus, he doesn't call out, Jesus, son of David, had mercy on me. Indeed, sinner, have you also settled for a life of darkness? Have you settled contentedly even to be apart from God, without hope in the world, just living in sin, living out your days? to a final eternal condemnation and judgment under the hand of God. The apostle Paul was correct when he said, there's no one who understands. Indeed, there's no one who seeks after God. That's the reality. The blindness of sin is so great that the sinner will not seek after God, has no desire to seek after God, and no ability to seek after God. And even as we see Jesus turn aside to this man, so it is in coming to God. In Christ Jesus, it's necessary that God would seek us out and send his spirit with his word to make that word effective unto salvation in us. For sinners are all too content, too settled in sin, too much settled with sin, and so comfortable with it. For darkness is all too familiar to them. Perhaps we can begin to see why the Holy Spirit inspired John to place this account so soon after the exchange that Jesus has had with the Pharisees. As Jesus speaks truth to them, and they're blind, they cannot comprehend it. They become angry at him. He's disrupting their their position and their power and their prestige, and they have already determined to murder him. So great is the nature of sin. My friends, if we can see the brightness of God's glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because we have a great ability. It's because God has shown us great mercy. He has opened our eyes and given us an ability to see Christ as he has set before us in the word. Word. God sent his son then into the sin-dark world to be the light of the world and to bring light to men who sat in darkness. As Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus was moved with compassion for this blind man, and he was sent by the Father to this particular man. Remember, Jesus multiple times has told us he does what he sees his Father doing. He says what he hears his Father saying. He's doing what the Father would have him to do. Jesus had zeal for the Father's will. And so it was, as Jesus came into the world, he also had a zeal to obey the Father to go to the cross so that the offer that he makes that whosoever will may come is a true and a genuine offer. 
this mighty miracle, the healing of this blind man, one of, which is one of Jesus' most frequent miracles. If you looked at all four Gospels, you would find that the healing of the blind is one of the most common miracles that Jesus did because it's such a vivid picture of the realities of what God and his grace by the working of the Holy Spirit does in the heart of a sinner. Isaiah prophesied, as we saw, oh, over a year ago, I'm sure, from Isaiah 9, he prophesied, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's, that's about this time that we're hearing about from John's gospel, that when God the Son came into the world, born of a virgin, he came into the world, and indeed, the people saw a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. This man, if he heard that passage after his healing, would have said, Amen, praise be unto God. For I have seen Jesus. Remember the words of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He likewise prophesied, saying, Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This was Jesus' message as he stood in the synagogue on the Sabbath in Nazareth. He took up the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned to the place that we know as Isaiah 61, and Luke records it in chapter 4. Jesus read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Darkness, sitting in darkness, Blindness, these are all spiritual afflictions that Jesus, the great physician, alone is able to correct. Let's think for a moment, an application. I think we can safely say that every one of us has sung those words of John Newton in the hymn Amazing Grace. Probably have it memorized. But do you remember what he said? I once was blind, but now I see. He's not talking about that he couldn't see with his physical eyes. He said, spiritually, I was blind. But now I see because of the grace of God, the amazing grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, my heart has been transformed. And John Newton celebrated that, even as saints have down through the age singing that hymn. Is that true for you? Can you echo the words of John Newton with conviction from your heart that once I was blind, but now I see? Because of the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God, by his spirit, has worked in your heart, granting you faith to unite him to Christ. Has your spiritual blindness gone? And do you now see Jesus? As it is said in Psalm 34, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Isn't that remarkable how often the scriptures speak of these spiritual realities with physical senses? Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching. We understand those things, how much greater by the work of God that we understand the realities in the heart, that our heart resonates with these things, that they are reality that we comprehend and we give glory to God. Secondly, we want to consider in a little more briefly using the common for the extraordinary. Look again at verse 6. After he had said these things, Jesus spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva. Rather unremarkable things. Uh, under the law, you know, for someone to spit on someone, they were declared to be unclean. Here Jesus takes his own spittle 
and he speaks on, spits on the ground, and from the dust of the earth, he makes the clay. And notice how John records it. This is a faithful translation. He anointed the man's eyes. If you have another translation, this is an accurate translation. It is the work and the word in the original language. He anointed the man's eyes. It has a, a picture of a something medicinal, but even more than that, of the work of God. Jesus anointed the blind man's eyes. Now, men commentators have argued down through the ages, and I mean all the way back to the early church fathers, they've argued about the significance of the clay and the spit. Why did Jesus do it that way? He could have just spoken. There were many times he just spoke and people were healed. Even with a leopard, he just touched him and he was healed. But Jesus takes and spits and makes clay and anoints the man's eyes. We're not told why. It would be unwise to speculate. But what we will notice is that these things were both at hand and they were very common. There's no way that we can attribute any power to the spit or the clay. They would have been used by God then to open his eyes. The clay covered the man's unseen eyes, and they give then a very vivid picture. If you can imagine this man after Jesus has anointed his eyes with clay on there, a very vivid picture of the reality of his situation. These are common even dirty things. If I spat in your face, you would be repulsed, right? It's an insult. And yet it is Jesus' choice to use these things. Does this not remind us of the command that God gave through Elisha, the prophet, to the Assyrian, Naaman? This mighty warrior, the chief warrior, of the king of Assyria, who's leprous, and the slave girl of his wife says, there's a prophet in Israel. You can be healed. And so this man comes, he comes loaded with gifts, thinking that he can secure, purchase, somehow buy the healing from his, for his leprosy. And what does the prophet Elisha tell him? He says, go and dip yourself seven times in the river Jordan. This proud and arrogant man is insulted. Are there not cleaner rivers in Assyria that I could have used? And his servants prevail upon him. He said, if he asked you to do a great thing, would you not have done it? He said, just do it. God humbled him, and he did. And the seventh time he came up, and his skin was as a fresh-born child, healed completely. And not only that, Naaman went home with a new heart and was now a God-worshipper. Not only had he been freed from the flesh-corrupting realities of leprosy, but he had been freed from the soul-corrupting effect of sin, the dirty Jordan. Elijah didn't come out with, with a jar of some holy water and pour it over the man. He sent him to the river Jordan. And even so, we'd see Jesus spit into the dirt and make mud, clay, and anoint the man's eyes. Jesus was not only focused on the man's eyesight, but upon his soul. Jesus did everything with a purpose. The clay covered his eyes. It was a picture of the heart, hard, dead, in trespasses. And so having anointed the man's eyes, Jesus sent him to the pool, Salome. You notice the parenthetical. John provides a translation of this word. It means sent. Back in the days of King Hezekiah, he had a conduit, or we would call an aqueduct, built from the Kidron Valley, from the spring of Gihon, to bring water from there in through the wall into the city so that there would be a water supply during times of siege. And then it was called... Shiloh, or even Shiloh, all meaning sent, those words from the Hebrew language. 
There's a significance, great significance in this passage. Go wash in the pool, Siloam. And John, I'm sorry, Genesis 49.10. I want you to go back there with me. Um, probably, remember we preached through Genesis. You probably remember that there was a point where before Jacob died, he blessed his sons. But you may not remember what he said in blessing Judah. In verse 10 of chapter 49, Jacob the prophet, in blessing his son, particularly Judah, says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him, Shiloh shall be the obedience of the people, until sent just do a straight translation or until sent comes. Well, who's sent? It's Isaiah's suffering servant, God's suffering servant, who he sent from heaven. For God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to save sinners. Jesus is Shiloh. And it is then that the rule and scepter was taken from Judah, even to David's greater son, who transcends Judah and Jacob. I mean, Judah and Jacob, yes, he is the sent one. And he has come to take up the scepter of Judah. Not only does he reign over the twelve tribes of Israel, but indeed he reigns over the nations because he obeyed the Father. Read Psalm 2 this afternoon and the promises that God made to him because of Christ's obedience and the completion of his work. He has seated him not only as as God, the Son of God, but as the God-man on his throne to rule and to reign. We know that this pool, as a matter of fact, I'm told you can still visit it. It's in the kind of south, southwest portion of the city, outside of the city of David, which was like the inner wall, but still within the wall, where it was this, this pool of Shalom. And it was a practice. Remember when we were looking at the Feast of Tabernacles, that each day during the week of the feast, the, the Levites would blow the trumpets, and they would bring water and pour it out around the altar a picture of the the cleansing work of God to wash away the sins of his people. It was from this pool that the water was taken and brought into the temple. We just completed the season of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and Jesus sends this blind man to that very pool to wash his eyes. What a remarkable thing. The picture of the sent one, sending one, that he would be free from his blindness, a picture of Christ who sets the sons of Adam free from the blindness. Remember the pool, the jars of water at the feast in Canaan, the wedding feast? They were ceremonial jars filled with water, and Jesus turned them into wine, thus picturing even then the coming and completed work of Christ, that his blood has a greater effect than all the ceremonial waters that were used down through the generations within the temple, that he is the fulfillment of all of these things. That's the meaning of the word shalom, sent. So when you look at verse 6 or 7, what I want you to understand, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of shalom, which means sent, you have the sent one sending one to the waters that mean sent, the waters that prefigured Christ. What a glorious and remarkable picture God pictures here for us. That he who is sent into the world gives sight to spiritually blind eyes. It's a rich connection. And indeed, we find these throughout the scripture for Jesus' fulfillment of the prophecies. As he told the two on the road to Emmaus, 
and he showed them that all the scriptures are about him, even something as simple as a, a pool named scent, that the waters from it were used in the Feast of Tabernacles. These things are all about Christ. And so Jesus sends the man to the pools. And so we come thirdly to God's work for God's glory. You remember when the disciples asked Jesus, you know, is this man blind because of his sins or that of his parents? Jesus says, neither. He is blind for the glory of God. And so John records the event of the healing. It's rather a brief manner. Verse 7 continues. It's a sentence. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It's so easy to read over that, but it should cause us to pause and wonder. It should cause us to give glory to God. Yes, this miracle was accomplished some 2,000 years ago, but we can still bless God and praise him for what he did on that day. Indeed, we should. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. Notice that unlike Naaman, this unnamed man, and children, I want you to get this. This is the way that not only you children, but we, your parents and adults, should obey. He went without excuse. He went without delay. And he went without argument. See how unlike Naaman that was? He just did what Jesus said. He immediately went and he obeyed. There was faith in his heart. Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit has baptized this man's heart and he's about to open his eyes. And so the man had a willing heart because he had a new heart because God had worked in him by his spirit and he obeyed the word, the living word Christ. And he went and he obeyed. Remember last week when we were beginning this ninth chapter, we commented on the fact that the man is nameless. The time is... We know it's after the Feast of the Tabernacles, but it's not specific. Uh, we know it's not fixed at a particular place. Is he still within the wall? Is he outside the wall? We're not told because all the focus in this passage, in this miracle, is upon Jesus, upon he who is the light of the world. John would have us to see Jesus, not the man, not the place, but the one whom God sent into the world to open blind eyes and take away stony hearts. You know, Jesus could have just spoken to the man as he stood there. He could have just said, receive your sight, and it would have been done. But look at all the things that we've drawn from the account of what John has given here, things that show us Christ, that elevate Christ, that would have us to exalt Christ, that we would see Christ as the fulfillment, that there was a purpose to the pool, even as Hezekiah built the aqueduct to bring the water into the city that would be used in, in the worship of the temple. Did Hezekiah understand all those things, the men who labored to accomplish it? Probably not, but we do now because God gives us understanding. Think about this too. This this pool would have been some distance away. Imagine you're you're in the city. You're you're going about whatever business you have. This is on the Sabbath day, so you know people are coming and going from the temple. They would be bringing sacrifices, heading up to the temple, and you're walking along. And you see this man walking towards you, and he has two clay patties on his eyes. Now, now, perhaps you don't know this man. Many would have because all his life he's been begging in the city. But you know, people that come in for the Sabbath would have stopped and gawked. We do, right? We're rubberneckers. And they would have like, what's that about? As he went by. And they would have noticed him. And he goes and he washes immediately. And then he comes back looking for Jesus. And those same people, though further down on their way, would say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that the same man? And then that's exactly what happens. That's what John records for us here. As he comes back, look at verse 8. Therefore the neighbors and those who had previously seen him, that he was blind, said, Is this not he who sat and begged? 
Now, you can understand their bewilderment, right? They, they say, well, he looks like him, but there's a whole lot different about him. Even has the same appearance, the same color of hair, uh, the same clothes, probably tattered clothes, not fine clothes. He's a beggar. They said, isn't this that man, they said? And, and then there's a debate and a discussion about it. Some said, this is he. Others, you know, right away recognize him. Others says, he's like him. It's like, well, he looks like him, but there's... He sees there's something different. He's not feeling his way along. He's walking erect and upright and walking with a boldness and a confidence. And my friends, we should understand that not only did Jesus open his eyes, but his brain and the optic nerve have never seen. They have never functioned. His brain does not know what to do with this input. And Jesus healed that too. He fixed that. So this man sees and processes what he sees. He has understanding of that visual input, even as Jesus opens our hearts so we can understand the word of God and grow in our understanding. And and you can imagine the man, he's not going, well, that was pretty cool. I think I'll go find Jesus. He would have been back exuberant, even as he came up from the waters and washing his eyes, it would have been a shout of joy. Certainly, wonderment. Those who had not noticed him prior to it have suddenly been alarmed. What's going on over here at the pool? This man would have probably leaped and, and shouted and, and rejoicing and glorying to God, even all his way back to try to find Jesus. And if you had missed him on his going out, you could not have missed him on his coming back. His posture was different. There would have been a confidence in the way that he walked, even as we have as those who can see Think of the contrast. You walk around in the house at night when it's dark, you go cautiously, right? Because you know what happens if you don't. This man does not need to move around that way anymore. He's seized because of what Jesus has done for him. What a commotion. What a remarkable event. What alarm and excitement. And so the people debated, is this not the one who said in bag? Some said, this is he. Others said, he's like him. And he said, I am he. He affirms it. He makes it clear. He's not, he's not afraid to acknowledge it. He declares that he is that very one. You imagine that joy had been hard to contain. There would have been those who would have known him. No doubt there would have been those who had given him alms. Those who every day were used to seeing him, perhaps as they make their way to work. And he's so different. What a cause for rejoicing. Is that not the case when we hear of a sinner who repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ? When God opens a heart, do we not rejoice with those who rejoice in that way? Can you remember that joy when God sets you free? How great is that joy? This man has a new heart and he has eyesight. What a remarkable transformation that God has accomplished. What do these things do? We hear about them all these years later, but what do they do? They stir us up to give God the glory, that we would exalt and magnify God. Indeed, it would take a very hard, stony heart to hear of such an event like this and to scoff and to belittle and to disbelieve. But my friends, that's what a heart of stone can do. But indeed, we rejoice. We give God the glory for the great witness of these things that Jesus has done. And so the debate goes on. Therefore, they, they, there's at least some of them are convinced. They, therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes open? Obviously, you know, his testimony, they said, okay, well, this is really him. That sounds like his voice. It sure looks like him. It's most remarkable. So they said, how is it that you can see? And what does he do? He gives glory 
to Jesus, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Now, he doesn't know a lot about Jesus. Understand this, he's not even seen Jesus. He's yet with his eyes to see Jesus. And he just gives a short account. A man called Jesus, somewhere along the line, he's heard what his name is. And he will never forget that name. A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received sight. It was just so simple. He just obeyed God and he received his sight. And even it is when Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Just believe him and come and receive eternal life. Even as this man received his sight. So then they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. It's remarkable. It's understandable that they would want to know, well, where is this Jesus? It's also understandable that he would not know. We consider this question, where is he? The healing of the man is the reason for this discussion. But Jesus, as we will see as this account progresses, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It is still true today to sinners who are blind in their sin that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We too, like this man, can bear witness and say, Jesus has done this great thing for me. Jesus has set me free from my sin. Jesus has given me a new heart. Jesus has given me a new eternal address. But Jesus has disappeared. Well, that's not hard to understand. If you look back at the last verse to the previous chapter as we have it, they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Jesus is not making himself known. He's not hiding, and indeed, we're going to see later in this chapter, Jesus will meet with this man. But there are those who are determined to kill Jesus. And yet, it's still a few months before the Feast of the Passover, about six more months. He's not going to die by stoning. He must die at the time of the Passover. He must be crucified upon a cross. As the prophet said, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Jesus came into the world to be cursed for our sin. And so Jesus hid himself until it was the time, or as John says, it was not yet his hour. We conclude with some application. This miracle was the work of God, and God alone received the glory for it. We can say, you know, God the Father, he receives the glory. Jesus is God the Son, he receives the glory. It was God the Spirit, who is the power of the broad sight to this man, even as he gave him a heart to believe Christ. God is at work, he receives the glory. And even now, if any of us have life in us, we give God to the glory. My friends, if you have been delivered from sin and brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life and God has worked in you, it is not of you that that has happened. You have nothing to boast in. Even as this men, you can say, Jesus said, come, and I obeyed. He gave me a new heart. He's done it. This is a mighty miracle. But my friends, if you have a new heart from Christ. If you have been saved by grace through faith, it is the greatest of all miracles. And it is a miracle that God is still still doing today. God is still doing the supernatural 
Every time a sinner repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, God has acted. And we should have great joy and great rejoicing. We rejoice with one of our own who today has professed faith that in his past that God has worked in him and given him spiritual eyes to see and a heart of understanding that has given him heart of faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us never be ashamed of the joy that we have in Jesus. Let us give God the glory. My friends, the answer to the question is, where is he now? Jesus is seated on the throne of God at the right hand of the Father. He is from there that he directs his church to preach the gospel and sends forth the Spirit to convict and convert sinners and bring them unto himself. And from there he rules and reigns over all the nations. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we do thank you and praise you for this remarkable miracle. We thank you for the where it is set in the gospel that we would understand its full meaning, but also that we would also understand the nature of the sin of the Pharisees and the blindness that was within them. Father, we thank you that you did not leave it up to the will of man that we go on in sin, but that you sent your spirit to renew our will and give us a new heart that we should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you praise, glory, and honor, Father, for that miracle of healing that blind man all those years ago. We praise your name. Father, we also praise your name for giving us hearts of faith to see Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.